Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, provides us what we need and we have some left over. That he is more than enough for us. And we pray that you would help us to see him now, to love him, to follow him with joy. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. During this season of Advent, we are reading the story of Ruth together, a story about two widows and a farmer, common people, whom God weaves into his grand plan of redemption through their ordinary acts of faithfulness. And last week, we made it through the first chapter together, but in many ways, that chapter only served to set the stage for what is to come in the rest of the book. Chapter 1 poses the questions that chapters 2, 3, and 4 seek to answer. Is there any hope for God's people? And more specifically, is there any hope for Naomi and Ruth? You see, the people of God were experiencing the displeasure of God in the form of a famine. The story of Ruth is told at a time when the judges judged in Israel. And Israel resembled Sodom and Gomorrah more than the holy people God called them to be. Is there hope for God's people? The conclusion of the first chapter gives us a glimmer of hope for them. For the famine had ended and Naomi was returning to Israel. And she was returning to the land she had fled with her husband and two sons a decade earlier in search of food. Is there hope for God's people? Perhaps there is. But what about Naomi? Is there hope for her? While in, Mo while in Moab, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and her two sons all died. She had gained two daughters-in-law, but still Naomi wasn't about the most vulnerable position a, a person could be in in the ancient world. She had no means of either provision or protection. She was, by her own admission, bitter and empty. Is there hope for Naomi? It, the conclusion of the first chapter gives us a glimmer of hope for her. Because returning to Israel with her is Ruth a daughter-in-law who is not only faithful to Naomi, but also godly and still of the marrying and childbearing age. Is there hope for Naomi and Ruth? Perhaps there is. And so we begin the second chapter on the lookout for signs of life, for signs of hope. It is Ruth and Naomi's story that is told in chapter 2, but God has so inextricably linked the fate of his people with the fate of these two widows that progress in the one story necessarily means progress for the other as well. The hopes of God's people are bound up in the story of these two inconsequential widows. And in a creative way, the narrator of Ruth gives us reason to hope right out of the gate in chapter 2. In the first verse, he introduces us to a new character. It's Boaz, who is not only kin to Naomi's deceased husband, but he's also an influential and wealthy man in Bethlehem. We've not met Boaz yet, but, we are, but by merely letting us know of his existence in the first verse, the narrator is winking at us. Because he already knows how this story is going to end. He wants us to experience the story as Ruth and Naomi would have experienced it. But he also wants to show us the ways in which God was involved that neither Ruth nor Naomi could have known because they were living the story. And so with a wink and a nod, 
He brings us behind the curtain that hid God's hand from Ruth and Naomi so that we might, know, we might see God at work providentially ordering their stories according to his will. In verse 1, he introduces us to Boaz, the rich kinsman of Naomi's. And then in verse 3, he tells us that it just so happened, wink, wink, that Ruth stumbled upon his farm in search of work. Ruth at the time had no idea that Boaz even existed. And yet, out of all the farms in Bethlehem, Ruth just so happened, wink, wink, upon the farm of a rich relative. Now, perhaps that's how Ruth and Naomi experienced it, just so happened. But the narrator wants you to see God's hand at work. This is no coincidence. This is providence. And it also just so happened, wink, wink, that Boaz returned home from a trip the very same day that Ruth happened upon his farm. You see, with a wink and a nod, the narrator is showing us that God is at work in the story of Ruth and Naomi. Unbeknownst to them, he's leading them to Boaz. For it's through Boaz that hope will be restored to not only these widowed women, but to all of God's people as well. And there are two facts that the narrator tells us about Boaz in the first verse. One, he is rich. And two, he is kin to Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. And this second fact about Boaz will prove to be consequential in the last two chapters of Ruth. But it's the first fact about Boaz that that he was rich. That's particularly relevant to the hope of Ruth and Naomi in this chapter. Boaz's wealth was reason to hope because Ruth and Naomi were anything but. Their desperate position was revealed in the fact that Ruth was found gleaning in the fields. She was walking behind the men and women who Boaz paid to harvest his crops and Ruth was picking up whatever it was that they dropped. She was literally collecting the scraps that the rich had left behind. But gleaning was a practice that God wrote into his law in order to provide for the poor in Israel, people like Ruth and Naomi. In Leviticus 23:22, God commands the landowners and farmers in Israel, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the edges of your field or gather the gleaning of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the alien. I am the Lord your God. Boaz's name might have been on the deed, but God was serving as Ruth's host in the field. He loves the poor and the alien so much that he codified his care for them in order to ensure that they might never be neglected. He forced the wealthy landowners to pay attention to the poor lest they be found guilty of breaking God's law. Ruth was, as one scholar describes her, no quiet mousy lady, but she was powerless and poor. She impressed the foreman who testified to her work ethic by telling Boaz in verse 7 that she's been on her feet from early this morning until now without resting even for a moment. Despite her strength, though, she was powerless. Ruth also reflected the covenant love of God in the way she clung to Naomi and returned with her to Israel. 
her faith and faithfulness in leaving her father and mother and her native land in order to come to a people she did not know and take refuge under a God she had only recently come to know impressed even Boaz, the hero of our story. But despite her love and faithfulness, Ruth was without hope in that moment. Therefore God led her to Boaz. And she just so happened, wink, wink, to stumble into his field. And it was for this sort of moment that God had set Boaz in the position that he enjoyed. And Boaz understood the responsibility that accompanied his position. Look at what Boaz did for Ruth. In verse 5, Boaz came home to find Ruth gleaning in his field. Not recognizing her, he asked his foreman who this woman was. And when he heard her story, all that Ruth had done for her mother-in-law, Naomi, Boaz approached Ruth and confirmed for her his willingness that she should glean in his field. Ruth had gained the permission of the foreman already, but it was another matter to have the actual owner of the field lending his blessing for her act of gleaning. In verse 9, Boaz then leveraged his power and position to order the young men not to bother her, to leave her alone. Also in verse 9, Boaz gave her access to water so that she could work longer in in his field. In verse 14, at lunchtime, Boaz called Naomi over and he gave her bread to eat. In verse 15, he then went above and beyond in his care for this poor widow by instructing his men to not just leave her alone, but to let her glean among the standing sheaves as well. Don't just leave her the scraps that you've dropped, but let her pick alongside of you. Uh, This was beyond what the law required. In verse 16, Boaz then tells his men, perhaps recognizing that Ruth may be not comfortable with picking from the standing sheaves because the law only permitted her to pick up what was dropped. Boaz instructed his men to pull out handfuls of grain and to drop them on the ground intentionally so that there would be more for Ruth to pick up in good conscience. Indeed, Boaz's measures made Ruth's day a more fruitful one than either she or Naomi expected. When it was all said and done, Ruth went home with 30 pounds of barley. There must have been far more excitement in Naomi's voice in verse 19 than we typically allow. Where did you glean today? (laughs) Where have you worked? And before she could be answered, Naomi blessed the man who had let her daughter-in-law gather so much barley in a single day. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Thirty pounds of barley in a single day is an impressive haul. But it wouldn't have happened apart from Boaz's obedience to the God who cares for the poor and for the alien by reversing their fortunes. The theologian Sinclair Ferguson summarizes the scene well. Here is a woman who left everything behind. One morning, she leaves her mother-in-law for the day, but in the evening, she returns home, not only full, but staggering under the weight of God's blessing and provision. The great reversal has begun. And the extraordinary part of this story is its ordinariness. God could have provided for Ruth and Naomi through miraculous means. He had done it before. It wasn't the first time his children were hungry and thirsty without any way to secure food or water. They were in the same situation when wandering the desert after escaping from slavery in Egypt. 
And there God provided bread for them by literally causing it to drop out of the sky. He provided water for them by squeezing it out of a rock. He could have provided for Ruth and Naomi in these same extraordinary means, but instead he chose to providentially lead Ruth to Boaz's field and work through Boaz, whom he established in the world for moments just like these. To quote the Westminster Confession of Faith, God uses ordinary means to work out his provision day by day. In this story, the influence and authority of Boaz were the ordinary means by which God provided for Ruth and Naomi and gave them reason to hope. You know, Tim Keller always says that if you're reading the Bible and it never chafes against your cultural sensibilities, no matter what culture you're from, then you're reading it wrong. (laughs) Because there's no one culture that is a perfect one-to-one match with the kingdom of God. Which means there will always be conflict at some point. And for us in the West, in this present moment, the story of God using Boaz and his position of authority to accomplish his will is one of those facts that chafes against us. Because authority and power are perceived as inherently evil. The mere possession of influence in society is a cause for suspicion. And yet in this story, God shows us that he's willing, chooses to even, operate within the power structures of this world. The abundance of Boaz was a tool in the hands of God. And Boaz gladly participated in this plan because authority is not inherently evil, but authority without regard for the poor, the widow, the immigrant and refugee, the oppressed, is evil. Boaz understood that with his position came a responsibility for these people who cannot care for themselves, either because they don't have the means or because society has so long ignored or silenced their voices that they're no longer heard when they speak up. God required this of Boaz. He demanded it in his law. and He requires the same of you as well, of any person who would be so bold as to call themselves Christians, little Christs. You see, God puts his children in positions of authority precisely so that they might have the opportunity to participate with him in the strengthening and renewal of all things and of all people. And you can see this as far back as Abraham. In Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The blessing of Abraham was for the sake of others. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, Paul praises God in the first chapter of his letter and he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all consolation who consoles us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. Our consolation is not just for us, but for the world, for others who will need consolation as well. So it's not just money and power and influence that God gives to his children so that they might be positioned to minister to the world. It's comfort as well. It's wisdom, experience, it's joy, it's faith, it's confidence. It's not just the rich whom God uses, but the sufferers and the people who rejoice despite their circumstances. 
we would be remiss not to point out the way in which Ruth blessed Boaz. God gave her such faith that Boaz marveled at her willingness to forfeit all things for the sake of her mother-in-law and for her God. If Ruth learned through Boaz about the kindness and love of God, then Boaz learned through Ruth's faith, faith about the supremacy of God. He is more valuable than all things, which is a lesson that any person of means needs to be reminded of often. In a way, therefore, you could say that Ruth entered Boaz's field and benefited greatly from God's hidden providence in guiding her there. In another way, you could say that when Boaz returned home to find Ruth in his field, that he entered her field. And he too benefited greatly from God's hidden provision in guiding him home at that very moment. So you see, you don't have to have much to minister to the person who just so happens, wink, wink, to wander into your field. The question is though, do you realize that this is how God typically works? Using ordinary means to work out his providence from day to day. Do you recognize your abundance? Are you watching for the person who wanders into your field? Are you looking for them, anticipating them even? Or are you hoarding the grace of God in your life? Hiding his gifts from the world out of insecurity or ignorance or fear of scarcity for yourself or your family? We rejoice every week that Jesus did not hoard the riches of heaven, but he left them in order to come to us. He left them. Uh, but the way of the gospel, contrary to what we in the West might suggest in this unique cultural moment, doesn't treat authority as inherently evil either. He left them, and yet he retained his power. Power that he explains in John 10, our New Testament passage this morning. Jesus tells us that even though he emptied himself and became a human being, still he possesses authority to lay down his life and authority to take it back up again. He was a truly free man. No one had any claim on him. If he was going to die, it was because he was going to sacrifice himself, not because he was being overpowered. His entire life was under his control, and he chose, he chose to lay down his life. He chose to die. He offered himself up as a sacrifice for your sake. Because if it wasn't him, it was going to be you. And only he had the power to raise himself again. So he died in your place so that he might satisfy the justice of God for your sin and offer you life by defeating death and the resurrection. And the father loved him for it. The father loved him for it. And the father loved Boaz for it. And the father loved Ruth for it. And the father will love you for it as well. Give to your neighbor what God has given you. And the story of God progresses. Hope bursts in. The kingdom comes. And he will lift you up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.